As central banks attempt to get inflation under control and engineer a slowdown in the economy, it's widely expected that a spike in corporate debt defaults is on the horizon. Naturally, investors are turning their attention to distressed debt strategies, which may see a growing opportunity set in the months and years ahead. But it's not as simple as that. Since the last major economic downturn, the distressed debt market has seen material changes in its own structure. If you sort of think about how that that market has evolved from a competitive standpoint, there's a lot of players there in a finite market that's created less attractive opportunities than we've seen historically. That was Brian High, head of capital solutions at Bearings. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion. Coming up on today's show, the evolving opportunity from traditional distressed debt to capital solutions, and why deal origination, transaction structuring, and private markets expertise have become critical to capitalizing in this shifting landscape. All right, Brian, hi. Welcome back to Streaming Income. Thanks for having me back. Excited to have you. Um, I was thinking about this and I decided I wanted to hit you with the hardest question um, right off the bat. So the question for you is this. Do you remember the last time you were on the Streaming Income podcast? I don't. I remember where I was, but I don't remember when it was. Okay. I'll I'll clue you in. It was uh, February 2021. So it's been... We're almost coming up on two years. It's been it's been a while, so it's been too long. So a lot happened in two years. A lot happened, and I and it's funny. I actually don't bring that up purely to test your your knowledge of uh, times and dates, but actually to uh, to make a point that a lot has changed over that time period. And we're going to get into that and really talk about specifically what has changed. Uh, a lot's changed, kind of structurally, just in terms of the market and the opportunity that's out there. And you, I know you and your team have sort of adapted the way that you're approaching it. So I want to get into all of that um, today. Now, your background um, traditionally is more on the distressed debt slash special situations side. Um, so you know, from a market perspective, I want to maybe start there um, because I think going through that evolution of more traditional kind of distressed debt to the types of opportunities that are available today is a pretty interesting progression. So let's start there, maybe just to give people context. If you look back, let's say over the last decade or so, where was that opportunity on the distressed debt side? Where did that traditionally exist? Sure. Yeah. If you think back to our first fund in 2012, and even going before that into the GFC, we were investing in the secondary market, buying loans and bonds at discounts, for either a pull-to-par trade or, you know, looking for some event to ultimately restructure the balance sheet, swap debt for equity, and get our returns, um, you know, that way. Uh, It's changed quite a bit since then. I would sort of highlight documentation as maybe a driver of of some of the changes that have happened. What what Um, does that mean? If you sort of think about how loose documents are today in terms of baskets that you can utilize to inject capital into into companies. You can drop down assets into mm-hmm, subsidiaries. Mm-hmm. You, you can do a lot of creative things to ultimately um, create new transactions for yourself, either through the secondary market or even more so today, fresh capital coming into so, some of these, uh, we'll call them troubled or, or storied credits. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So, so that has created you know, an opportunity for us to do more primary transactions as opposed to secondary. Uh, and then if you, you sort of take that forward, once, you, once you're known for being able to structure something up front like that, you may wind up 
as we did, seeing more private investment opportunities. So it went from a very public, you know, focused strategy to now uh, probably swung completely the opposite direction into a private transaction. Oh, wow. Okay. That, that's really interesting. So, yeah. So traditionally it's more kind of liquid market credits that encounter some sort of stress or distress. Now it's the, the script is flipped a little bit. And I guess to your point, partially due to, um, to, to changes in, in documentation. Um, what else has changed, would you say, that's driven that kind of evolving landscape? I mean, I think the amount of capital that's been raised on the private side has created more private capital structures where there are a lot of players in the traditional direct lending space that have financed companies and not all of them work out, as we all know. A lot of those providers don't necessarily have the skill set or the personnel to kind of deal with those issues. So we've seen more opportunities come our way where sponsors are looking for a solution to get rid of what were traditional direct lenders into a situation that may be a little bit more challenged um, and they're not comfortable being in, the, in those shoes and, and we can step in with a new solution. Okay. So you've got uh, massive growth in the direct lending space and obviously that asset class has not really truly been tested through a cycle and maybe we're starting to see that um, finally come through. What about on the distress side? I mean, it has increasing uh, competition and things like the, you know, higher cost of bankruptcy, have those been kind of part of the equation as well? Absolutely. So there's been a lot of capital raised to go after the liquid markets over the years, and there's been fewer defaults than maybe people would have anticipated. It's been a, a long sort of bull run here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so a lot of that capital still exists, and they're they're all looking at the same opportunities. And that's uh, mostly on the liquid side? On the liquid say? side, right. So so it's it's much more competitive and and therefore prices maybe don't break down or have not broken down as much as they did previously. Mm-hmm. We'll see what happens. Maybe there'll be some more capitulation in the public markets to come. If you sort of think about how that, that market has evolved from a competitive standpoint, there's a lot of players there in a finite market that's created less attractive opportunities than we've seen historically. And then, and then on the, the rising cost of bankruptcy, is that yes, a factor? Yes. Yeah. Very important point. Uh, I think given the complexities that now exist in some of these structures because of the ability to inject capital, there tends to be around one where maybe there's a, a liability management transaction that creates another class of, of debt within a capital structure or new money coming in that creates another class of debt. Um, on top of that, you know, professionals are more expensive. Uh, you know, I, I can remember when um, you know, we were all sort of thinking $1,000 an hour for a bankruptcy attorney was was crazy, and now mm-hmm. it's you know, well, well north of that, that multiples right? of that. So, yeah. um, you know, th- that that cost associated with complexity in the capital structure, as well as just call it inflationary pressure on bankruptcy professionals, has made it difficult to keep a company in bankruptcy to do some of the things that we used to do with mm-hmm. bankruptcy, where you could you know reject leases, contracts, other things that could create value for you. Mm-hmm. It's becoming much more focused on just a balance sheet restructuring transaction, and you, you're seeing. 24-hour bankruptcies or, um, you know, a very short prepackaged bankruptcies that that ultimately don't create the value that they used to and are more expensive than they used to be. So it's, it's the value proposition for a restructuring still makes sense in some cases, but maybe not as much as it, it did in all cases previously. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, I'm just curious, one of the things that you could argue, I guess, is that defaults have been at a minimum for whatever time period you want to pick a decade or so uh, because of artificial, you know, monetary stimulus. 
Uh, do you think that that's a big factor? And do you think as that unwinds, if we continue down this path that the Fed seems to be you know, pushing us down, do you think that you end up seeing rising defaults? I do. I think, I mean, certainly you know, capital structures are strained given the, the higher interest rates on floating rate capital structures. Um, and, and then on top of that, inflationary pressures elsewhere, to the extent companies can't continue to pass that through and capital markets are frozen and there are companies that are facing significant challenges with maturity walls or some, some other liquidity event, I think that there will be a rising default rate. Do I think it's going to mirror the GFC where there's this huge spike and then you know it sort of tailed off? I don't. I would kind of expect it to be maybe a, a lower level of, of, an, of a higher default rate for a longer period of time. Okay. Uh, so that opportunity set will kind of linger out there. There's the triggers in, in the documents today are, are primarily liquidity related or maturity related. So you sort of have to wait for those those things to play out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, OK. And to your earlier point, I guess it could be interesting because so much capital has been raised over the last couple of years in distressed funds. It, you know, even if we see a rise in defaults, it seems like it's probably still going to be hyper competitive, um, you know, trying to take advantage of that um, opportunity. So. Um, maybe just to recap, so we've got, in terms of kind of what's changed and led us to where we are today, before we talk about some of the more specific opportunities, um, so massive growth in direct lending space, and you're seeing that, you know, potentially go through a cycle here and that ends, you know, maybe there are uh, managers out there who have not managed through this type of environment before, and uh, you're likely to see some um, stressed and distressed situations coming out of that. You've got a liquid market that traditionally has offered maybe more opportunity than it is today simply because competition and other factors like documentation and rising you know bankruptcy costs etc so that's all led you down this road to basically a, a real changing opportunity set right and, and i think this is why you and the team made some changes in terms of how you're approaching the market so talk to me about that talk to me about like what types of transactions are available today that that maybe weren't even on your radar before or maybe were less of part of the equation before yeah i think i think the firm has been incredibly supportive of allowing us to evolve with the market you know if you think about our skill set it's it's around complex transactions that that need some kind of a solution used to be that was primarily restructurings we've you know, led over 150 corporate debt restructurings since 2008, um, both in developed Europe and in North America. That has given us an opportunity to effectively create new capital structures, which is very similar to ultimately structuring a transaction in, in another complex situation that maybe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. maybe because it's a, a growth business that, that ultimately doesn't have the EBITDA yet, but needs financing to continue to grow into something that's a more traditional you know, direct lending capital structure, if you will. Uh, so, you know, if you think about how we've situated ourselves within bearings, we were traditionally focused on the public side of the market and then shifted to the private side really during COVID was when it, when it started to pick up significantly. And there were opportunities for us to leverage other parts of bearings and tap into that origination network. And it, it's rather impressive. I mean, we've learned over the last couple of years, the amount of opportunities that come in through either bearings or bearings affiliates mm-hmm. to look at Interesting transactions that are different, unique, things that investors like to see, less correlated to the overall markets. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about pharma royalties that we've done, 
more hard asset, structured asset finance opportunities yep. that we've 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 participated in, and then also where we can be more like our global private finance partners, the sole solution in a capital structure, and we're not in a club deal or in a syndicated deal, and, and we control our own destiny. That's mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. something that didn't really exist five years ago, and now it's a bigger part of our book. That makes sense. So it's 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 very much the opposite of stuff that you could you know buy off of a, a, a public exchange. As I look at some of the things that you guys have done, it's it's stuff like you know opportunistic lending, looking at orphaned assets, um, still looking at market dislocations, uh, you know when that when that makes sense in, in restructuring situations, um, and, and also I know you guys have done some structured preferred equity types of transactions. So I almost think of it maybe this is too simplistic, but I almost think of it as like the types of transactions that are not obviously falling into another traditional bucket. And I want to yeah. talk a little bit about that because I, th- I kind of, you know, thinking ahead to our, how our investors think about this and what bucket they put it in. I can imagine that's, that's a little bit of a challenge, but let's talk a little bit more specifically about some of these deals, because I think it's one thing to sort of, you know, uh, mention them kind of high level, but it's another thing to hear about them. So it'd be interesting to hear, are there one or two that you could, you know, tell us about that would, you know, give people a real feel for the type of transaction that you're doing today? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned a few themes that make a ton of sense and and the way that we sort of describe it is bearings, you know, has a lot of uh, tee shots, if you will, given the network that we have. If it's, if it's down the middle of the fairway, it fits a lot of the strategies that we have Mm -hmm. things that are in the fringe or maybe in the rough. um, That's where we typically like to play because there's less competition, not as many people, focused on those types of assets away from bearings. Yeah. What's we the, what would with, be the woods? Cause that's where I usually play from. Yeah. Same, <laughs> same here. I try, I just try not to lose my ball. <laughs> I don't know how I would describe that. Okay. But, um, yeah. I, I do think that there are opportunities that we've seen recently, you know, even since last December that, that I would describe as uh, you know, similar to what we talked about. Maybe a more vanilla opportunity would be a traditional direct lending club lender group that, that was facing sort of an unforeseen new risk and a contingent liability that, that was hit at the company because of regulatory changes in, in their market. Mm-hmm. They were looking for a junior capital solution to basically deal with the contingent liability. We you know, were shown that opportunity. At, there was a handful of people that were, were tapped to sort of look at it. We ultimately didn't think the junior capital solution made a lot of sense for us. What we thought made a lot more sense was a unit tranche deal where we could be dollar one risk and control our own destiny. We knew the players in that that club lender group that uh, we we didn't really want to be a junior capital provider behind okay. because of you know their their lack of experience and sort of stressed situations. Mm. So we were able to step in, get paid, call it equity like returns, mid to high teens, um, you know, even before interest rates mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. moved. Um, to be dollar one risk and and have warrants in that business to sort of provide you know a, a, a runway for a better day for the sponsor and ultimately pay us for the risk and, and our ability to structure something that was unique. We were the only person that came with a Unitronch deal. They ultimately started down the path, you know, looking to get that junior capital deal done. Ran into issues with our senior lenders and called us up and said, "You guys were right to to sort of point this out early, and we'd like you to pick the pencil up again." And we ultimately closed that deal last December. So, those are opportunities that we didn't used to see that now we do because we're tapped into our sponsor coverage network here at Bearings. Mm-hmm. Other examples: you know, we have a pharma royalties team here here at Bearings. 
when there are debt solutions and those opportunities are creative um, financing opportunities, we've we've partnered with them to to be a part of those solutions. They're mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. experts on the drugs. Mm-hmm. We're experts on putting something creative together to ultimately get the risk adjusted return right from our perspective. Box in the risk that they identify mm-hmm. and then price it appropriately. And 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 our investors tend to really like that. And that's risk that's very different than you know a company facing inflationary pressures or the labor market issues that everybody mm-hmm. else is facing. So now for those two, is that, is it usually when something is, you know, going off the rails or there is a company is in a tough spot? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Yeah. Okay. I mean, a couple of, a couple of um, opportunities for us. One was, you know, they were looking to introduce new capital into a situation where they could go chase another drug. If they had an existing drug, we could underwrite and mm-hmm. provide a um, a, a royalty bond against, and, and we were able to sort of structure that and mm. partner with a couple of people to get that done. A second example in that space was you know, a milestone rights agreement, which is a very unique structure that was ultimately part of a, a prior um, uh, financing package. The old lender was refinanced and they had this you know, milestone rights still sitting in their fund that could go on for decades. And ultimately we were able to buy that at a steep discount because they had made their money on the debt. So that's ultimately where we've kind of found unique opportunities that, that other folks were not, um, Mm -hmm. it would, it would be a different underlying portfolio than, than, you know, some other competitor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Again, I guess really stuff that is kind of off the run. I don't know if that's the right terminology. Way off the run. Way off the run. Um, So, but, but, uh, you know, one of the interesting points I think I hear you saying is that it's not like these types of transactions are really widely shopped around, right? And they're certainly not part of like syndicated offerings. They are much more um, bespoke unilateral type deals. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I know there's a there's a marina in Charleston that you guys are involved in that I'm very interested in, um, partially because I want to go visit. But what, what's what are you guys doing um, there? Yeah, you know we have a fantastic partner um, down in Charleston, a management team and an executive chairman that I've known for you know, over a decade, who introduced us to this opportunity during COVID when they had bought a couple of small marinas in Charleston and realized that there was an opportunity to potentially source some more very quietly. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're looking for financing partners. That's a space that, you know, although we have a, a very large real estate business, Bearings hasn't traditionally participated in. Thankfully, COVID gave us a lot of time to, to get, you know, really deep in the diligence there. And we brought in some third parties and, and got very comfortable with that market and marinas in general really like the space. They're very unique assets. It's you know, if you think about the Charleston market, there's not a lot of marshland to build new slips, if you will. And that's a very strong boating community globally, f- mm-hmm. frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, we thought we had the right location. We had a couple of, of really nice assets and an opportunity to go out and do a little bit more. Um, and we provided a, a hold co-financing behind the banks inside of real estate valuation um, and got paid very attractively and, and got some upside alongside that mm-hmm. and got to watch them operate and execute and ultimately decided to continue to invest in the equity alongside them to become a larger player and um, you know influence that situation a little bit more. And we continue to sort of look for new opportunities in that market um, 
given the execution that's happened to date. That's great. That's great. Well, between what uh, you all are doing in Charleston and what the real estate team uh, is doing as well, I had John Ockerbloom on the podcast talking about some of the uh, development that they've been doing in Savannah. And then also, you know, uh, it looks like more and more in the Charleston area as well. I think we may be able to approach our CEO, Mike Frino, about opening the Charleston office. I'll, I'll <laughs> I take may, one of those. I, I may suggest we put, the, we put down a flag in Kiowa. That's not a bad place. Absolutely. But, uh, and, and, you know, John and his team have been great about, you know, helping us think about other ways to add value in, in those situations on, on the back end where we have some raw land and have the opportunity to develop whether it's hotels or, or other multifamily yeah, yeah. opportunities, they've been great helping us think about that, you know, as we um, price how we, we ultimately uh, purchase some of these, yep, these yep. properties. That's great. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about sourcing because as we've kind of mentioned multiple times, these are not the types of investments that you're buying off public market exchanges. It's changed, as we've talked about, pretty dramatically from the days when you were primarily looking at you know, uh, distressed credits uh, that were liquid market-based credits. So let's talk about sourcing. Uh, I imagine these are not the easiest transactions to originate. So, and, and I also imagine that there's no one kind of uniform way in which these transactions uh, come into you and the team. So uh, how does that work? Yeah, I mean... We we have a we have a unique situation in that we have a fantastic parent that sees a, a lot of stuff. So we'll start there, and then we'll work our way down. So mm -hmm. so there are things that we see because we're owned by Mass Mutual that maybe we wouldn't otherwise see. Mm. Um, I think that you know the the bearings part of the equation is incredibly strong. Uh, you know we we've we've picked our verticals, we've grown in those verticals. On the liquid side, we're, we're we're a large player in a number of deals, and we have proprietary models on eighteen hundred plus corporate issuers, we can tap into that very easily and have been doing that for well over a decade at this stage. Mm -hmm. um, we have our private credit business that's grown tremendously and is a fantastic player in that market. They have strong sponsor relationships. Uh, we, we can tap into you know, those originators internally. Similar on, on the real estate side and really across some of the, the other, the structured asset parts of the business to, to really see everything, frankly, that, that has um, some kind of angle that requires, you know, we'll call it a complexity premium to it that ultimately we can structure around and get paid, you know, nice returns on a risk adjusted basis for our underlying investors. So that's a, that's another element. And then you can even go down to our affiliates, like, like Eclipse, which we purchased last year via the BDC. It's an asset, asset based lender that's, mm -hmm. that's playing in stressed and distressed situations, um, uh, on, on an asset-based lending perspective. And sometimes we can partner with them to provide a holistic solution for a term loan and an asset-based revolver. Those opportunities are coming you know, fast and furious as well. And I, I anticipate that to pick up given where we're headed. Mm -hmm. So um, there's just a lot of unique angles that we have. I and mean, we have an aircraft lessor. Um, you know, we, we, we didn't ultimately execute on anything, but, but looked at a lot of opportunities through them during the COVID crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, we'll see if we go into a downturn, there may be opportunities there as well as, as airlines look to find ways to create liquidity for themselves. Okay. So um, when you think about, uh, I guess, the commonalities between some of these different types of investments, right? Um, I mean, we're talking about a pretty diverse group of investments, everything from, you know, Marina in Charleston to farmer royalties to some of the you know, the Unitranche uh, deal you mentioned on the direct lending side, 
pretty uh, diverse group of opportunities. So to me, it seems like maybe not to put words in your mouth, but it seems like one of the commonalities is, is really the structuring. So I guess my question for you is, if you are running a team as you are, uh, that is looking at deals that are so different. I mean, what is the skill set you need to be able to actually execute? Because also, let's not forget, a lot of times these are situations that are, you know, have a fair amount of risk associated with them. So there's uh, pricing that risk and structuring around that is uh, massively important. So what is that sort of um, expertise you really need? From my perspective, there's a couple of, where are we experts? We're generalists generally uh, in terms of, we don't focus on an industry, but we're really good at getting underneath from a risk perspective, how to box that in mm -hmm. via, you know, whatever agreement we're, we're subject to, and then price that risk appropriately so that it feels like relatively compensated for the risk that we're taking. And, and those, that, those risks can take various shapes and sizes. Where I think we're also really good is, we're generalists and we, we acknowledge that we can tap in and we're willing to tap into where bearings has deep industry knowledge via whether it's a, a high yield analyst, someone on the real estate side, you know, someone who's uh, been focused on pharma royalties for their entire career. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We, we lean heavily on them from an experience standpoint in a given vertical. And then we try to go deep alongside them. They can get us up to speed a lot quicker structure a transaction that may be a little bit more creative than um, hopefully our competition would put together, mm -hmm. be able to sell that to, to the issuer and the sponsor, if there is one, as a good solution for everyone, yeah. all of us accomplishing the same goals. That's a skill set that, you know, we've, we've been negotiating complex transactions for a long time in various, mm -hmm. um, you know, instances, including restructurings, which can get pretty complex and, and heated. Uh, so we, we tend to take an unemotional, very economical approach to sort of boxing in that risk and pricing it appropriately. Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear the word solutions because I feel like the word solutions is thrown around very liberally in in uh, asset management marketing. Um, but it, it, the more and more I learn about what you and your team are doing, it really does seem to be solutions. I mean, you're having different groups come to you and saying, hey, we we have a problem here and we need, uh, you know, some creativity to, to come up with what really is a financing solution. And I know you and your team have structured deals in so many different ways now, but I, yeah, I imagine that having that experience of, you know, working through so many bankruptcies over the years, dealing with the legal side of things. I mean, you just get very comfortable in the weeds on these types of um, transactions. Now, you know, w with regards to, we, we don't really talk, explicitly about returns on this podcast for obvious reasons, um, compliance reasons, et cetera. Um, but I know that as you think about the attraction of the space that you're in for our investors, I know, well, I guess what, what, what types of premiums would you think are potentially achievable? So we hear a lot about the illiquidity premium mm -hmm. when we're having our conversation with our uh, colleagues in the direct lending side. Um, but I've heard you talk about a complexity premium as well. It'd be interesting to hear you talk a little bit about what that actually means. Sure. I think it's driven by sourcing and, and structuring. So, you know, it, it is where you, you don't receive a shiny deck that has all the answers and you're, you're sort of fitting it into your, your model. It's, mm -hmm. it's less of a, a manufacturing line and more of a, you know, one-off solution for a lot of what we do. And so if I tried to describe sort of the sourcing and structuring angle, 
you know, something that has some asset scarcity where we can really tap into the origination network that, that we have at Bearings and with some of our affiliates that I, that I mentioned earlier. Um, and then also sort of lean on some of our own personal relationships that we've built over you know the last couple of decades, mm-hmm. whether it be you know restructuring uh, professionals or, or legal advisors, or some of the banks and intermediaries that have vast networks of middle market opportunities that get shown to a handful of potential financing partners. That's where I think you know the sourcing angle comes from, and then the structuring is really trying to tailor these bespoke solutions that we talked about earlier to exactly what the situation is. Do we like the underlying fundamentals of of what's happening? even if it's in a challenging situation where some people may just walk away, but we like the, the underlying fundamentals and, and what you know is the base of what we're ultimately investing in. Mm-hmm. And we're willing to sort of be patient and use you know, the, the capital that we have that isn't, isn't uh, you know, we're judged on a, a vintage basis or over a longer period of time, as opposed to every single day looking at, at a Bloomberg and saying, okay, we were down five basis mm-hmm. points yesterday and the market was down four. Why was that? So it's a much longer term of financing in terms of how we ultimately put money to work. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, and I just want to come back to the point around, uh, you know, our investors, as you have conversations out there with, you know, big pension funds, insurance companies, endowments, et cetera, as you have conversations with these sophisticated institutional investors, uh, you know, I'm curious uh, how they are thinking about what you're doing. Um, I'm sure they are looking at the same set of facts that we are in terms of, hey, the the landscape for traditional distressed assets has really changed. And maybe we need to shift and look at this opportunity over here. H- how are they thinking about that? And how are they bucketing this sure. uh, type of investment. Yeah, I, I think the general theme is they, is they view it as something that's complementary to traditional direct lending private credit. So we're obviously chasing a different kind of premium as we just talked about. So, you know, the return profile is, is a little bit different, um, but does tend to be sort of somewhere between private credit and private equity uh, in terms of how it ultimately fits there. And, and I think we've gotten a lot of traction with um, family offices, endowments, some of the pensions mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and the like to, that, that ultimately like the fact that it is, it is very different. It's not in lieu of a private credit allocation. Mm-hmm. It's just a different flavor of yeah. private credit. And, and, and they look at it as complimentary. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And I know that, uh, you know, John Bach and a lot of the, our team who are involved in private credit and BDCs and things like that, I know, I know one of the things that they've all been talking about is, you know, as the private credit asset class has matured, it's uh, arguably become almost more of a beta play, or it sort of depends on how you are investing in it. Um, but with certain managers, you're almost getting like a market beta type of exposure. Um, so I know that that's something that they really concentrate on and, and looking for areas within that universe that they can generate alpha. But but I think what you're describing um to me, almost seems like the opposite of market beta, right? It's going for that, you know, really differentiated alpha, but it's the type of thing that involves a lot of work on the back end, a lot of creativity, a lot of structuring expertise as you target those returns. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm probably saying the same thing you are, but it does feel like traditional sponsor LBO finance there is a correlation between 
you know, one manager to the other. One might pick better sectors and better companies, um, but a lot of the drivers that we're seeing out there today that are putting stress on companies are impacting all of them. Yep. Whereas, you know, a marina in Charleston may have a very different dynamic, a little less correlated and, and very regionally focused. Mm-hmm. That's a different risk profile and, and kind of a, and ultimately generates a different return profile, but it's still a private deal that, you know, we can monetize, mm-hmm. um, you know, when we think the opportunity is right. Yep. Great. Um, all right, Brian, I think we made it to the end here. Uh, last question for you. Um, as you look out, let's say at the next two years. So let's say, let's hope, let's hope we don't wait another two years before getting you on the podcast because you're doing too much interesting stuff, um, to wait that long. But, um, but look at looking out over the next couple of years, um, any thoughts on how this market opportunity may develop from here? Yeah, I mean, we're starting to see our pipeline fill up more and more with stressier opportunities. Um, you know, companies that are facing challenges that are looking for some form of opportunistic capital to come in and help uh, shore up ahead of what may be coming. And I, I definitely think, as as we talked about before, though, there will be more defaults. Um, and as a result of that, and the fact that you know the documentation is what it is, there's going to be opportunities for liquidity solutions to come in for liability management opportunities. And, you know, certainly if we continue to see what we've been seeing in the liquid markets, maybe some dislocation where there's an opportunity to take advantage of, um, you know, sort of a technical element in the market that could create attractive entry points for us. Um, so, you know, we've, while we've been very focused on the private side, doesn't mean that the public markets can't ultimately offer um, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. attractive it just has, it tended to be in windows of opportunity. Mm-hmm. If you sort of look back over the last handful of years, and I think that that may be the case on a go forward, just given the amount of, of, of capital on the sidelines at the moment. So, um, you know, that's, that's sort of how we are thinking about deploying capital. You know, we'll see where, where uh, the Fed takes us. Uh, it does feel like there's going to be a lot of opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll look forward to hearing about that opportunity. It sounds like it's about being flexible and nimble and, and sort of being able to adapt uh, with this market as it changes, as we've already discussed in pretty good detail. It's changed quite a bit. So uh, I will look forward to uh, doing this again with you uh, sometime soon and, and hearing about how it's changed. But uh, this is awesome. Brian, appreciate your time today. Yeah, maybe in Charleston. Appreciate so, it. Oh, let's on. do it. All right. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to episode number five of season seven of Streaming Income. If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest thoughts on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. We publish a new episode every other week. And if you have specific feedback, you can email us at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.